In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to Christ and his mercies to you this 15th Sunday after Pentecost. As the church here begins to draw to a close, so our lectionary, the text we read, begins to draw our attention to the close of the age. And as God would have it, the current events are right in tune, aren't they? All around us are signs meant to lead us to repentance. Signs meant to cause us to reflect on the end of the age. In this respect, then, the message of the church here and the world out there is in perfect harmony. We are being called to consider our lives in light of our mortality and to consider our lives in light of the inevitable ending of this age and that day in which we shall each stand before the judgment seat of God. So I've titled this homily, Preparing for Judgment. Preparing for Judgment. And part of our preparations for judgment have to do with our relationships with one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow servants of the King. And at the heart of that is forgiveness. Isn't it remarkable how simply St. Paul asks the question, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul continues, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In a very real sense then, brothers and sisters in Christ, our entire lives as Christians are but a preparation for this very moment, for this very judgment, when each of us stand before God. And in truth, my entire vocation and role as your pastor, Christ's gift of the pastoral office to the church, is also for this purpose, to prepare you for that very moment, for the judgment when you will stand before the face of God and give an account of yourself. There are few things that I can tell you with absolute certainty But with absolute certainty, I can tell you that you will stand before the judgment seat of God. Your knees will bow. You will confess to God. You will give an account for yourself to him. And part of that account is the question of forgiveness. The question of how you forgave your fellow brothers and sisters, your fellow servants in Christ here in this life. A story is told of a desert monk who was deeply insulted by one of his brother monks. So he came to their spiritual father and he said, Father, I was so hurt by one of my brother monks, I cannot get over it. I must enact justice. I must see vengeance through. Then we can move on. 
Their spiritual father said, don't do this, my child. Leave vengeance, leave justice in the hands of God. But the offended and insulted brother said, I simply cannot do it. I must see this thing through. I must be avenged. The spiritual father said, first pray with me. So they both stood to pray, and the spiritual father prayed in this way. Our father, forgive us our sins as we do not forgive others. The point was made, and the brother fell down at the feet of his spiritual father and said, I will set this aside, have mercy, and forgive me. We as Christians are blessed with two great sources of strength when it comes to forgiving our brothers and sisters. In the first place, we may forgive because we ourselves are forgiven. That sets our hearts and minds on the cross. Because we are forgiven, we may forgive. The other great strength that God gives to us is the judgment. Forgive as you wish to be forgiven. With your eyes set upon the judgment in that day in which you yourself must give an account, how is it that you would want the Lord to forgive you? So forgive others. Now the story that Jesus tells is very simply a story that is meant to repulse us, a story that is meant to leave us disgusted with the unforgiving servant. Now, of course, Jesus' story comes on the heels of Peter's question about forgiveness. How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jewish tradition at the time was that you forgive up to three times. Anything more than that, and you were giving permission, not forgiveness. So Peter is really overstepping and outdoing himself when he suggests seven to the Lord. It's a pretty good number to guess. Seven, the Lord seems to like it. Let's try that. Well, Jesus' response is, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Which, of course, requires you to get out a spreadsheet and keep track of each. And no, that's beside the point. The point is forgive and forgive, and there is no limit to our forgiving. Then Jesus tells the account of the king who calls all of his servants to him so that their accounts can be settled. And one of those servants comes and has a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, commentators are a bit all over the place in terms of what the actual value or amount of that is, but they're all in complete agreement that it is insurmountable. One says it would equate to about 6 million days of working in order to overcome that debt. No doubt our Lord Jesus has in mind that we would pause and consider our great debt, our sins against him. Sins of thought, word, and deed. One of the most depressing things to me as a pastor is when I overhear a Christian saying, in all seriousness, something like, well, I can count on one hand the times I've sinned this month, and on two hands the times I've sinned this year. Oh. 
Let me tell you your first sin. Pride so great (laughs) that you are utterly blinded to your true sinfulness. Now when we consider those things that we have done wrong in thought, how many a day? In word, in deed, and then as if that were not enough, that really is just the tip of the iceberg. What we have done wrong in thought, word, and deed. How about all the right that we have left undone? Those things we should have thought but didn't. Those kind words we should have spoken but failed to. Those deeds of mercy we should have enacted but we stayed our hands. How astonishingly insurmountable is our debt before God. No different than that servant standing before the king. Now the king first says to the servant, well, since you can't pay up, I'm going to sell you, your wife, and your children, everyone into slavery so I can at least recoup something. But the servant begs and pleads for mercy. And the king is moved with compassion, such intense compassion that his forgiveness is unlike any other forgiveness that would immediately jump into our minds. He doesn't put his servant on a repayment plan. He doesn't put his servant on some kind of probation. Nor does he penalize his servant in any way whatsoever. He simply releases him and forgives his debt. Which, of course, also means that that king eats that debt himself, suffers that loss himself. And in this, we see precisely the cross of Jesus reflected. Debt doesn't just disappear. Our debt is borne by him. Our loss is suffered by him, and he does so willingly and lovingly for us so that he might speak those words to us. I forgive you. Your debt is no more. Now, if the story ended there, wouldn't it be lovely and wonderful? I could simply say, Amen, and that would be it. Plus, you'd get a shorter sermon. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is to contrast this blessed forgiveness with what comes next so that we might be horrified and appalled because that very man who has been forgiven so much next goes out and finds a servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii, that's about a hundred days' work. I mean, it's a sizable debt. It's a real thing. It's a real debt owed. This isn't trivial. But the response of that forgiven servant is to seize the man. And immediately he wraps his hands around the man's neck, choking him and says, pay what you owe. When the man begs for mercy, begs to have his debts forgiven, exact parallel to what immediately preceded, it is now time for the forgiven servant to be forgiving and know he sentences the man to prison. Shocked and appalled are his fellow servants, and they immediately go and tell the king, and the king calls the man back, and he says, you wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And poignantly, Jesus ends his sermon, ends this entire discourse with these words. So also my heavenly Father will do to each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We are to be appalled by, repulsed by, the stinginess and lack of forgiveness on the part of the unforgiving servant. The sins that our fellow servants, the sins that we commit against one another, may indeed be substantial. As many of you know, there is a lot of hell that you can pack into a hundred denarii of debt. But there is one who suffered that penalty of hell on the cross in order to remove all debt, not only from you and me, but from those who sin against us as well. That debt that our brothers and sisters in Christ might owe us, real and legitimate as it is, is as nothing compared to the debt that our God has forgiven us. And that's precisely the point. So when our brothers and sisters sin against us, where do we find strength to forgive? In exactly these two ways. We look first to the cross. And there we remember our debts and we confess our sins to God and we see what debt he was willing to pay in order to release us. And so then we see how small our brothers sin. We forgive because we are forgiven. In the second place, we might also consider the judgment that is to come. When we ourselves will stand before God, kneel, confess our sins, give an account for ourselves to Him, what do we want Him to say to us? What kind of forgiveness do we want Him to grant to us? That is precisely the forgiveness we ought to grant to those who sin against us. We forgive because we wish to be forgiven. Whether our eyes are set on the cross behind us or the judgment in front of us, either way, we are hemmed in by the mercy of Christ. And we find the mercy of Christ as the great source by which we can share mercy with those around us who need it. This, then, is how we prepare ourselves for the judgment. And yet there is one way in which we may prepare ourselves for the judgment even better still. Let us this day come here to this altar, for in coming here to this altar, we come both to the cross and to the judgment. 
as all of the signs of judgment and the signs of the end are around us, as all the signs of the judgment and the signs of the end invade our interpersonal lives, and I know for a fact that we are, many of us are suffering more than we have. Things are more acute and more difficult in our personal lives. In the midst of all of these things, even in the midst of the remembrance of our great sins, past and present, we come here to this altar and we come to the cross. We see the one who gave his body and blood on on the cross for us once and for all. And now he gives us this very body and blood for us to eat and to drink so that we might be cleansed, not metaphorically, but truly, as true as his body and blood are received in your mouth, you are cleansed and your sins are forgiven. So as we come to this altar, we come to the cross. But as we come to this altar, we also come to the final judgment. Who is he who judges us on the last day? The same Jesus we meet this very morning. When you see him on the last day, it's not as if he is seeing you for the first time. It's not as if you are coming to him for the first time. We go to communion as if to the judgment, so that on the day of judgment we go as if to communion. What does the Lord say to you here? The very same thing he says to you on the last day. Your sins are forgiven. The cross is the judgment, and the judgment is the cross. And the verdict is you are forgiven. God has shown you great mercy, brothers and sisters in Christ. Show one another the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the offertory.